0: no pressure on being funny i thought is this a funny message i don't think i have a funny message here to to bring to you so um but i do want to say um i've had just a great weekend and super thankful for brian and scott just to be able to spend the weekend talking about evangelism and i just love these brothers they have a tremendous heart uh, to see lost people come to know christ and that was a joy uh, for us to be together. So, so thank God for you guys and, and all that you're doing to serve this church. All right, turn with me to Isaiah 52, if you will. As you're turning there, I want to read a story. In 1949, a man named John Courier, who could not read or write, was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Later, his sentence was commuted and he was transferred from prison and paroled to work for a wealthy farmer near Nashville, Tennessee. But in 1968, his sentence was terminated. State correction department records show a letter was written to the prisoner and the farmer for whom he worked. The letter said, that he was a free man. But Courier never saw the letter. He never knew that it had been written. One year went by, and then another, and then another, and then five years, and finally 10 years went by, and still he did not know that he was free. Courier just kept working, just serving out his life sentence. He was making almost no money, he, his life was full of hard labor, he slept in a drafty trailer, he took baths in a horse trough. Life held very little joy and no promise of hope. This went on until 1979, when a state parole officer found the letter, drove out to the farm, and told John Courier that he was free. It is suspected that the farmer liked the cheap labor and never delivered the letter. Imagine having a letter that important and never delivering it. Imagine having news that good, a message that amazing, and never delivering it. Let's look at Isaiah 52, verse 1. It says, Awake, awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no no more come unto you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord... You were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, My people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. Verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, Isaiah is prophesying about the future when Babylon would rise to power, destroy Jerusalem, and carry God's people into exile. This is devastating news. Jerusalem is the city of God. But the Babylonians would tear down the walls and rip apart the temple. They would kill the defenders and enslave the rest, leaving only the weak and poor and sick behind. So Isaiah pictures these stragglers waiting in the ruined city of Jerusalem as this battle is being fought for their freedom against the Babylonians. This battle is not being fought in front of the ruined gates of Jerusalem. It's a few miles away. It's over the mountains. And Isaiah pictures the dejected people in the city are breathlessly awaiting news of the battle. If the news is victory, they're delivered. If the news is defeat, then all is lost. I mean, listen to the tone of Isaiah 52. It's full of triumph and joy and celebration. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come unto you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So God is telling them to wake. He's saying, get up. Get up, summon your strength. Get your best clothes on. Take those rags off. Why? Because the city has been delivered. There are no more enemies. They've been defeated. Stop laying around in the dirt. Get up, dust yourself off. And then sit down and take your chains off. You are no longer a slave. Your captivity is over. You are free. And then in verse 3, Says this, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. So the Babylonians just came and took God's people for nothing. And the Egyptians did the same thing, and the Assyrians, which is why they're mentioned in verse 4. The Lord didn't get anything when they went into captivity no payment, nothing. This makes God look weak, like the big. Bully Babylonians just came and took his lunch money. God surrendered his people for nothing. And the Israelites felt completely let down. They're convinced that they should not have trusted God. He didn't come through for them, so they lift up their voices and in crying and wailing. In verse 5, the second part of verse 5, it says, Their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually, all the day, my name is despised. They're wailing against God. They're complaining. How could God have let this happen? Well, their captivity came about because of their own sin. This is what they deserved. They were being disciplined for centuries of defiance and rebellion and betrayal. It was their fault, not God's. But God breaks in. I want you to see this. God breaks in on their complaints and anger with verse 6. Verse 6 is completely unexpected. God just got done saying in verse 5 that Israel continually despises His name all day long. They despise who God is. They complain and doubt and condemn God. And yet, verse 6 says, "...therefore, My people shall know my name. Israel was saying, how do we know that what you said in verses 1 and 2 will happen, God? How do we know you're going to do this to the Babylonians? Why should we dust ourselves off and put on our best clothes? We've been in captivity for 70 years. Why would any of that change now? How do we know that what you say is true? And then in verse 6b, God says, therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. How do we know this is going to be true? God says, it is I who speak. Reminds me in Luke 1 that when the birth of John the Baptist is foretold. You remember this story when the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah when he's burning incense in the temple and and Zachariah is not so sure about this promise and he says to gabriel how can i be sure of this i'm an old man and my wife is well along in years and gabriel says i am gabriel i stand in the presence of god and i have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news You know, there's something in us that doesn't naturally believe good news. God is telling Israel some incredibly good news, and they don't believe it. It just seems too good to be true. They're thinking about all the ways God has failed them. And so, like Zechariah, they question if what God says will come to pass. And it's not wrong to question things, except when God is speaking. Gabriel wanted Zechariah to understand, we are talking about God. We're not talking about the empty promises of a man. We're talking about God's word. I stand in the presence of God. And here in Isaiah, God is speaking another promise of good news. But it's hard to believe God, especially when we go through trials when things aren't going the way we want them to. We doubt God and and we don't believe His promises. And in so doing, we despise Him. Israel was wailing against God. They were charging Him and and blaming Him. So what is God going to do? In verse 5, it says, Now therefore, what have I here declares the Lord. It's kind of like God is saying, well, 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 what do I have here? What am I going to do with these people who despise me all day long? you know what God says? I am going to show them my name. I am going to show them who I am. I am going to come to them. Here I am. This is amazing. God is once again going to reveal Himself. He's saying, despite your constant rejection of me, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to deliver you and speak to you and comfort you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to dwell with you. It reminds me of the song, How Deep the Father's Love. I, I love that line that says that He would give His only Son to make a wretch his treasure you know an amazing grace when it says how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me my friend who grew up in a baptist church and they would sing that song he said when they got to that line that saved a wretch like me they would always sing it when they were kids as who saved a wretch like you and point to the old people in the congregation We don't like to think of ourselves as wretches, right? It's not natural. But we are wretches. And we have despised him. And his response to us? I will come to them. Here I am. The the therefore in verse 6 makes no sense. It does not follow. We are wretches, but he makes us his treasure. He takes us back. He shows us His power. He gives us Himself. He reveals Himself so that we know Him and we don't doubt Him any longer. But there's a big difference between how God speaks to Israel and how He relates to Israel in their story and in ours. See, God couldn't just take us back the way he did to Israel. In their case, he didn't have to pay any money to the Babylonians. He just took his people back. But with us, he had to pay. And it was a price beyond anything that has ever been paid. It cost God dearly. To get us back, it would cost God His Son. Our sin against God has put us in infinite debt to God. And this is not a debt that He can ignore. Our sins must be paid for. We must be punished for all the times we've despised God. How are we going to escape this? We have chains around our necks. We're lying in the dust. Our captors and oppressors are walking our streets. Is there any hope? And that's where verse 7 comes in. Look at this verse. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So remember God's people sitting in that ruined Jerusalem in bondage and slavery. Remember the battle is taking place miles away. The watchers are eagerly looking for news of the battle. And suddenly on a distant hill, a runner is seen. And he runs down the hill and out into the open plain. People then start to gather on the wall. What is the news? He's yelling something. What is he saying? He's saying, good news. Good news, there's peace. There is happiness. We're saved. God reigns. Let the celebration begin. God was right. Put on your beautiful garments. Take off those bonds of slavery. We are saved. Lift up your voice and sing. Sing for joy. We have been rescued. Now, I tried to think of what this would feel like. What would bring this level of joy? And as I thought about this, I thought, okay, there was, there's one moment more than any other moment, except maybe like Christmas morning. But when I was a kid... What would bring me the greatest joy is when there was a snow day. When you thought you were going to school, you woke up, the ground is blanketed with snow, and school was canceled. Now, I know if you're a homeschooler, you can't really understand the depth of joy. My kids could never... You can't get this. Only I just need public schools with me here. You understand this, Right? You understand what it was like. And listen, you know as a 9 or 10-year-old boy, this was the greatest news that could ever be delivered. And in a sense, we were saved. We were saved from the prison of school. Uh, we were delivered from our oppressors, the teachers. Peace came because there was no more forced labor, homework. That is the joy that they were feeling. And I like how verse 7 emphasizes the feet of the guy bringing the good news. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. How beautiful are the feet of him who publishes peace, the feet of him who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says, your God reigns. Now, the irony here is that feet aren't beautiful. Right, they're dirty and nasty and smelly and ugly, especially in biblical times where they wore sandals or went barefoot. You know, their feet were mess. Like they had to come into the house. You know, we're like, okay, hey kids, wash your hands before you come in to eat. They're like, hey, wash your feet before you come in to eat. I mean, their feet were messy. But when you're bringing the gospel to someone, listen, when you're bringing the gospel to someone when you're bringing news this great, even your feet are beautiful. The feet of my mom in her old slippers coming up the stairs to tell us it was a snow day, they were beautiful feet. The feet that run over the mountains and down the road to deliver the good news of the Gospel, They are the most beautiful feet in the world. They are feet worth celebrating. Guys, we have news that is greater than any news that anyone has ever heard. And we have the joy and privilege of bringing this good news to those who desperately need it. We're God's messengers. We are those runners. We are His feet. There's a great story about this in 2 Samuel 18, where the Lord had delivered David from his enemies. And Joab, the commander of the army, sends this Cushite to run and go tell David the good news. It's just like this scenario here. Go run and tell him. And this guy named Ahamaz says, I want to run. Let me run and tell David. And Joab says, no, you're you're not going to run. And he says, oh... Oh, please, come, come what may, let, let me run. And he says, why, why do you want to run? You're not going to get any reward here for this. And he says, come what may, let me run. And Job says, run. And he outruns this Cushite to bring this good news. Listen, church, we have an amazing message of good news. The idea that we wouldn't deliver this news news this great is unthinkable. We should be dying to get this message out. We should be saying, oh, come what may, let me run. So let's just look for a few minutes at this good news that God wants us to share. So I have three points. Number one, the gospel is news of peace. It's news of peace. So it says, how beautiful upon the mountains, this is verse 7, are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. This is what everyone wants. Everybody wants peace. We want peace in our relationships and peace in our world, but we don't know how to get it. Listen, the world does not know how to get peace. In the 70s, Cat Stevens told us all we need to do is get on the peace train. John Lennon said we just need to give peace a chance. And they were talking more about the civil rights and the Vietnam War when the world seemed like a very divided place. Unfortunately, not much has changed. The world seems even more divided. But listen, the world can never have real peace until they have peace with God. We are all born into war, a war that we're fighting against God. From the moment that we're born, our sinful nature tells us that we should be God. We should be king. We should be in charge. We should make the rules and do what we want. That's what sin is. It's doing what we want to do and not what God wants us to do. It's pushing God's authority down in order to boost ours up. And this is where all of our problems come from. Being at war against God is not a good idea. If God is against us, we will never have peace. But the gospel is a declaration that peace has come. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has made peace between us and God. God declared war on sin. Jesus stepped in front of us, took the full start of God's wrath, on the cross, took our punishment, cleansed us of sin, and brought us to God. And because of this, we have peace. We have peace with God. That is the message that we proclaim to the world. And we must find ways to tell people about this peace. Now, did you notice how it's in verse 7, it said, how beautiful are the feet of those who publish peace. That's kind of weird. Like, Does the guy kind of run down the hill and then right before he gets to the gates, he kind of sets up a little printing press and people are like, hey, what's the news? Hold on, I'm getting my type set. I'm going to publish these papers and I'll start handing them out in a few hours. No, the word publish can be translated to herald or to proclaim. It's someone entrusted with a message. So we're called to publish as well. We're called to herald, to proclaim to those who are not Christians, so that they too can find peace with God through Jesus Christ. Number two, the gospel is news of happiness. Again, verse seven, it says, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. You know, religions try in very different ways to bring people happiness, but they don't do a very good job. They usually bring a lot of duties and requirements and rules that leave people feeling guilty and aware of how short they fall. Jesus, listen, Jesus is the only one that can bring true happiness. Why? Because he's the fountain of happiness. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been happy for all eternity, loving and adoring and worshiping and and celebrating one another in perfect joy. And when we repent and trust in Jesus to save us, we're automatically joined to this joy-filled, happy trinity. We're united with God Himself, and we become the objects of His love and affection. The world is desperately looking for happiness. The world is desperate to find happiness. They will never find true happiness apart from God. It can only come when we're united to Christ. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Happiness can only come when the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and joins us to God. When God comes into our Jerusalem, into our ruins and our mess, and He sets up His throne and breaks our chains, when He takes ownership of us, that's when we become happy in God. Now, most people don't see God this way, but God is full of gladness and laughter and happiness. This is why He created us things that give us joy and happiness. That's why he created laughter and tears of joy and clapping and singing. I mean, read the book of Acts. It is marked by happiness and celebration that just comes from the filling of the Holy Spirit. The apostles didn't just decide to get happy because of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. No, the Holy Spirit came into them and filled them with the very presence of God. God now dwelt inside his people. There's a great quote by A.W. Tozer. He says, the moral happiness of the creator that's god had taken residence in the breasts of redeemed creatures and they could not but be glad the work of the holy spirit is among other things to res- to rescue the redeemed man's emotions to restring his harp i love that phrase to restring his harp and open again the wheels of sacred joy which have been stopped by sin. We have a message of happiness to share with others. Does the message of the Gospel make you happy? Does it? If it does, we should be eager to share this happiness With others. It shouldn't be a chore or duty. It should be a delight. We have the incredible privilege of bringing happiness to a world that cannot find it. Number three, the gospel is news of salvation. So it says, Who publishes salvation? Who says to Zion, Your God reigns? So when this messenger was running across the plain, He's yelling, we're saved, we're saved. The Babylonians are defeated, we're not going to die. Church, we have a message of salvation for those around us. And it's more incredible than anyone could ever imagine. No matter who you are, or what you've done, no matter how badly you've sinned against God, no matter how much you've despised God, and doubted Him, and railed against Him, and disobeyed Him, you can be forgiven of all your sins. And join to God. You can be saved from the punishment of hell through the blood of Christ. You don't have to suffer the agony of God's wrath. Salvation has come. You can be rescued. And it's all because God reigns. He won. He reigns over sin and death. God has given us salvation. He's given us the victory. And He calls us to run and to spread the good news. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Sharing the gospel, it's probably the most difficult area of the Christian life. It's difficult for me. It really is. And and here's the problem. When we tell people the gospel, they don't respond with joy and singing. They don't kiss our feet. When we run down the mountain with the message of good news, people think we're crazy and outdated and intolerant. People think that we're self-righteous and hateful and judgmental. Our news doesn't seem so great to the rest of the world. And there are reasons for that. One reason is that our good news has some pretty significant bad news attached to it. And people don't want to hear the bad news that they're sinful wretches and that they can't save themselves. But we have to share the bad news in order that we can then share the good news. And that's not easy to do. There's risk involved, especially in today's increasingly hostile environment. I read a super disturbing statistic recently that 47% of Christian millennials, that's basically in their 30s, do not, This is Christian millennials. Do not believe that we should share our faith. That it's wrong to share our faith. Why? Well, because it's risky. It's scary. We're afraid of what people are going to think about us. The number one obstacle to sharing the gospel is fear. It's a dangerous job. It was the preaching of the Gospel that got Jesus killed despite how beautiful His feet were. I mean, think about this. How beautiful are the feet of Jesus that brought the Gospel to our lost world. That, that's why a woman kissed His feet in Luke chapter 7. Do you remember this story? And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, she was a prostitute, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. And Jesus later said, Shh. The Pharisee, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Even though Jesus had the most beautiful feet in the world, and those feet brought us the greatest news in the world, they still pierced his feet, they nailed his feet to the cross. Some people kissed his feet. Some people pierced his feet. Some people will love your feet. And some people will hate them. One of the reasons it's dangerous, this is so difficult is and so dangerous, is because people don't realize the danger that they're in. They don't realize that they're lost and they need salvation. And because of this, our message doesn't seem like good news. It's like when my mom would wake us up for school. She would come upstairs to get us up and it was not good news. But imagine if she came to wake us up to tell us it was a snow day and we didn't believe her. We just moaned and complained because we didn't want to go to school. We didn't want to see her feet coming up the staircase. The world thinks that Christianity is like going to school. It's a bunch of rules and restrictions and boring work. They don't realize that we have joy beyond their wildest dreams. We have an eternal snow day to tell them about. If they could only see the danger that they're in. If they could only see what their real problem is. Their main problem is not politics, it's not a lack of money, it's not bad relationships. Those are problems, they're not the greatest problem. Their greatest problem is that their sin has separated them from God and they cannot earn their way out of it. J.C. Ryle says, till men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and need, no real good is ever done to their souls. You cannot do any good for someone's soul unless they understand their sin and their need we must remember that people don't see the problem of their sinfulness and we have to find a way to help them to see it and God is going to help us to do this this is why God has brought us together this morning he wants to remind us through Isaiah how amazing and beautiful and powerful the gospel is and we know how beautiful the gospel is don't we We know how powerful the Gospel is. Do you remember when you were lost? Do you remember what your life was like? Do you remember when your heart was hard and closed to God? Do you remember when you first heard the Gospel? Do you remember when the Gospel broke in and changed everything? This is why we come together and we worship with all of our hearts. We're reminding ourselves of the power of the gospel that has saved us. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. The message of the gospel is powerful. We don't have to be powerful. We don't have to be clever or wise or perfect to share. We just need to get this message out and watch God go to work. We have power on our side the power of the gospel you have been changed by the gospel you know what it means to be forgiven of your sins and adopted into the family of god this doesn't mean your neighbor's going to come bounding over the fence to ask you all about what god has done in your life but god can use us even when we take small steps i know you don't want to offend people and you don't want to come off like a weirdo. Please don't come off like a weirdo. Just be yourself. Be who God's made you to be. Be sincere and care about people. Maybe you haven't talked to your neighbors in years, maybe you haven't talked to your coworker about the gospel. God can use a friendly greeting or a plate of cookies. He can. Use an invitation to a co-worker to go to lunch or grab some coffee with a relative. God wants to use us. Do you know that Paul actually quotes this passage in Isaiah in Romans 10.14? It says this, "...how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard?" And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's the word proclaim or to herald. How are they to hear without someone proclaiming or heralding? And how are they to herald unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul's saying, how are they going to hear about Jesus if we don't speak to them? How are they going to believe the Gospel if we don't share it? They're not. They, they need us to open our mouths and and to tell them about Jesus. This would be like, like not delivering that letter to John Courier. He couldn't know that he was free unless someone told him. And it's the same for us. They need us to open our mouths and tell them about Jesus. Jesus. And God is sending us to do this. He's sending us into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, our families, our classrooms. This is what He did in the very beginning. In Luke 9, Jesus sends out the 12 to proclaim the gospel. And in Luke 10, He sends out the 72. In Acts, He sends out the church into the world to be His witnesses. And God specifically gives His Holy Spirit to help them overcome their fears and the gospel has been given to us. The baton of the gospel has been passed down from one generation of believers to the next, and now it's in our hands. God is sending our feet into a world that desperately needs the good news. I mentioned earlier that sometimes people don't see our message as good news, but there are some people that do. Not always at first, but sometimes they come around. When I was in high school, my brother and I have an identical twin brother. He um, he shared the gospel with us. We had grown up Catholic and then Episcopal. We had no idea what the gospel was. And this friend, his name was Alvaro, one day in chemistry class, he said to my brother Bob and to me, he said, do you guys think you're good enough to go to heaven? And we're like, yeah, sure, of course. I mean, just look at us. Of course we're going to heaven. And he started to say that it's impossible to get to heaven by our good works, that we're all sinful. And my brother and I knew nothing about this, but we're Irish, so we're good at arguing, even if we have not a clue what we're saying. So there was a lot of nuh and yuh what nuh and, and we couldn't like, refute this guy. And so I remember we went home and said to my mom, do we have a Bible? And we had this old, big, huge Catholic wedding Bible, which was massive. And it had a framed picture of Jesus on the front. Got it off the shelf, a mushroom cloud of smoke went up. I mean, dust, you know, like, and an, you know, just sort of opening this massive Bible. We had no idea what we were doing. It's the first time we ever opened the Bible. We were 17 years old. Somehow we found John 3, 16. I don't know. was like a little clue that like something that said, look at this verse. And so we're like, oh yeah, oh, this verse, here we go. So we went back in school, our chests were popped out. We're like, hey, Alvaro, guess what? Um, yesterday we were looking in the book of Johnny, and we found that it says, if you believe, you're in. And we believe, and we're in. So there, you're busted. And he said, well, the book of James says that even the demons believe and shudder. And we're like, crud, who is this? Who is this kid? And he, he kept telling us the gospel. We would argue with him. I, we actually went back and started to read the Bible. I started to read the Bible just to refute him. Because of my pride, I began to read the Bible. But Alvaro kept talking to us. We kept asking questions. and he kept, His mom would, would share the gospel with us. And about probably a year and a half after that, my brother and I both came to know Christ and were saved. And you know what I think about all the time? I wonder what made Alvaro share. We had known Alvaro for years. We didn't know he was a Christian. There were some things he did with us, maybe not great things, but other things he wouldn't do. He wouldn't party with us or drink. He wasn't perfect. Uh, He wasn't great at even sharing. But I think this, why did he do this? Why did he all of a sudden in chemistry class Decide to share the gospel. Was it a mess? Did he hear a message like this? Was it on a Sunday morning that the pastor preached and he thought, I got to say something to those twins? And listen, we didn't make it easy on him. We fought him. He had no idea the effect it was having. We would get in these arguments, but we would go back home and think about what he said. He could have given up. He could have said, You know what? I tried, I, I shared with him. I shared once, but these guys are so arrogant, they have no idea what they're talking about. They just argue and yell like two little Irish twins. Like he, he could have just written this off, but he didn't. He kept sharing the gospel. Kept talking to us about that. Why did he do that? I don't know. But I'm so thankful that he, I'm standing here because he did that. Listen, who in your life do you need to share the gospel with? What neighbor? What coworker, What family member? God wants you to open your mouth and to share this good news. And listen, you never know what's going to happen, even if they reject you and argue with you. God is at work. I know that sharing the gospel can be scary but it is a beautiful thing to bring the message of peace and hope and salvation to others. Listen, the greatest way that you can love someone is to share the gospel with them. And if you take the risk to do that, your feet will be beautiful to many. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for... For Alvaro, I thank you that he opened his mouth to share the message of the gospel. And I thank you for how you opened my heart, even though I was proud and arrogant, despising you. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, I know this is scary. I know this is hard. I know there is guilt. I know there's condemnation. I know we feel inadequate. I know society is getting more hostile. It's getting worse. The stakes are getting higher. I pray that you would give us courage and boldness to share the gospel. Lord, You have put us in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our families so that we can testify, so that we can tell others, so that we could be the beautiful feet that bring the gospel to a lost and dying world. Help us to do that, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.